today on Act News Daily. Sometimes I feel like Eastern Iowa is a cesspool of issues. <laughs> I mean, and, and in all serious, you know, my job, I don't get phone calls to go and look at good corn. You know, it's, it doesn't take a whole lot to walk out and say, yep, looks good. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Another Ag News Daily podcast, joined by Ashton Carr, and of course, I'm Delaney Howell, hosting today. And I tell you what, Ashton, I am almost out of a voice today. Not really, but uh, just hopped off of a farmer panel that I was moderating on behalf of Nyman Ranch with about five other Nyman Ranch farmers. And for those of you not familiar with the Nyman Ranch system, it's basically a free range or deep bedded system to raise hogs. So it was really exciting to be a part of that virtual event. Usually this event would be going on in Des Moines this time of year. So I'm a little sad that we didn't get to have that event in person, but uh, still awesome to participate in that event virtually. And I'm sure Maybe a few of you folks that are listening to the podcast today aren't new listeners hearing from me today on the on the panel. So welcome if you are. Absolutely, Delaney. It sounds like something fun to be a part of. I'm just a little bit jealous, I guess. But uh, for my little bit of news that I want to kick off sharing today, I've been following along, of course, with African swine fever, and it has made its way into Germany. And ASF has been confirmed in Germany for the first time. The German Ag Ministry says a wild boar cadaver found in the eastern state of Brandenburg tested positive for the virus. And a 10-mile, 15-kilometer quarantine zone has been issued around the area where the case was discovered. And the movement of farm animals will be restricted And likewise, corn harvest in that area will be banned because ag officials say wild boar often hide in those cornfields. And the South Korean Ag Ministry has now issued a ban on German pork imports despite an outbreak of African swine fever in Korea last year. So we will see how this affects the markets, what's going on with pork in Germany, and hopefully there's not really a big outbreak or anything. Hopefully it's just that one wild boar cadaver that had tested positive. Well, it it, it really can't be just that one, I assume, you know, that tested positive. So just Mm going to kind of keep an eye out on that and see what comes of it. If they do find other animals, how many of them and all that good stuff. Yeah, you'd think there would have had to be either another animal or a person or something that uh, carried that into the country. I, yeah, I, they, I guess it's so new that they haven't went back and, you know, did any tracing or or really anything like that. And especially since it's a wild boar, I'm not sure exactly to what extent they can trace, but I will definitely keep an eye out for that. Well, I suppose the good thing about uh, being locked up or quarantined in a lot of countries or not being able to leave the United States is we don't really have to worry maybe as much about that tracking in that disease into the U.S.'s pork system. So there's always a a bright side to things, I suppose. But speaking of COVID, the Senate is set to vote today on a coronavirus aid package that has been acknowledged as being a little bit vulnerable to Republican senators maybe changing it a little bit later on. So this bill includes about $20 billion in ag funding and doesn't appear to have a, a 
good passing chance in the Senate because Republicans widely support it, but it doesn't seem that Democrats do. So I'm sure there's going to be a lot of amendments to be made. Maybe it doesn't even make it to a vote. Who knows? But uh, that is set to be tackled today. And hopefully they start to get something sorted out here for producers that have been impacted, of course, by COVID-19. But for other producers impacted by Hurricane Laura, I want to just issue a quick reminder that, of course, there is some government money to be had for you if you have had some negative impacts from that. We haven't yet heard about any sort of wildfire relief or derecho relief, but there is at least some Hurricane Laura relief for the time being. Well, that is good news to hear, Delaney. And I'm hoping to hear some other good news because of the WASDI report. Do you have those numbers in front of you? You know what, Ashton? I've got to admit I made a mistake. The WASDI report is actually tomorrow. It's usually the 10th of the month, but uh, this year it's actually the 11th. So we'll be talking about that on tomorrow's podcasts. But I'm glad you brought it up because I did want to talk a little bit about it or, or forecast a little bit about the potential things that could happen on tomorrow's report. You know, at the end of the day, none of us can re- can really guess what the USDA is going to release. We've talked about it a lot on the podcast. You think they're going to do one thing and they do something completely different. But for the first time in 2020, they will have access to field data when constructing crop estimates for corn and soybeans. So we're expecting them to hopefully use some visual crop appearance when estimating these things. We're hoping that they really take a deep dive to examine the derecho storm damage because, of course, the report in August came out just after that storm had swept through parts of Iowa and Nebraska and Illinois. So they really hadn't had time to estimate that damage yet. So we're really hoping that tomorrow's report will shine a light on some of that damage. But nonetheless, pre-report surveys have shown that USDA is expected to reduce the U.S. corn crop estimate to a national yield of about 177.7. They're expecting to see a lower production number, expecting to see a lower ending stocks number. And so we will watch that tomorrow. We don't know, of course, that that is true, but that is what the trade is expecting from a corn side of things. Now, on the soybean side of things, we're also expecting to see a lower yield of about 51.6 bushels per acre, as well as a lower crop production number and lower ending stocks. So that's, of course, coming out tomorrow. We'll analyze that a little bit more in depth on the podcast tomorrow. But this could be the biggest USDA report of the year. So we might have to get a market analyst on last minute, Ashton, if it does turn out to be a big report. Of course, that drops at 11 a.m. Central Time tomorrow. So by the podcast recording tomorrow, we'll have those estimates out. We'll have seen if the market moved ahead of that report or or after that report, for that matter. But it could be definitely a market mover from what analysts are suggesting. I certainly expect it to be a pretty big market mover, but we'll just have to wait and see until we discuss that report tomorrow. But Delaney, it has been a really slow day for me over here, just kind of looking out to the WASD and of course that German African swine fever case that I had mentioned. But other than that, I'm kind of out of news. You know what? I am almost out of news as well, other than I just want to follow up here on the story we talked about yesterday 
with speculations that President Trump has ordered the EPA to deny those retroactive exemptions of small refinery waivers as noted under the renewable fuel standard. We see multiple news entities report this is the case, but yet we have not seen either the White House or EPA respond to a request for comment confirming the report. So we're seeing the news report it, but we're not seeing the administration verify that that information is correct. However, we did also note that uh, the U.S. renewable fuel credits traded at their highest since March of 2018 on that news or after that news was released or speculated on Wednesday. But again, haven't seen it confirmed by the administration. So I really hope it does go through. I hope that news is correct and that uh, the news entities here weren't just speculating on false news or fake news as we've heard it called. But uh, that is always, I guess, a concern since we haven't seen the White House confirm that uh, that's the case. Yeah, it it definitely is. And hopefully within the next couple of days, we can see some kind of confirmation and clarity come through. But it's just a kind of a waiting game. It certainly is a waiting game, Ashton, as it was in the markets today, waiting to see how high they could climb. What do you say we take a look at the markets? Let's do it. Well, corn and soybeans have surprised, I think, a lot of folks continuing in this September rally. We saw corn today closed up pretty high on the day. And we've also seen some pretty interesting action here in corn over the past couple of days. Seen some folks, you know, trying to analyze what's going to happen in this corn market. But we continue to see funds adding to long positions And uh, we'll have to see what happens ahead of tomorrow's report if we have any folks, you know, buying, selling ahead of that report, taking some exiting positions. But at least for today, we saw some strength starting off here in the September corn contract closed up six and two quarters cent to close at 356 and a quarter. The December added four and three quarters cent to close at 365 flat. In the soybean pits, the September contract added five and a quarter cent to close at 985. The November lost a penny and a quarter after trading higher on the day to close lower at 9.77 and a half. In the wheat pits, the September contract added six cents on the day to close at 5.40. The December added five pennies to close at 5.48 and three quarters. In the livestock pits, green across the screen as the October cattle contract added 40 cents to close at 105.10. The December added 27 and a half to close at 109.42 and a half. In the feeder cattle pits, the September contract added 77.5 cents to close at 139.17 and a half the October, $1.35 higher on the day to close at 139.60. In the lean hog pits, the October contract added $3, which I believe is the daily limit, to close at 64.37. The December added $3 as well to close at 62.85. And rounding out our markets with the Class 3 dairy milk futures, September contract shedding 12 cents today to close at 16.50. The October up 15 cents, tickles at 18.63. Ashton, without further ado, tell us who we're talking to for today's interview. Today, we are talking to Nicole Steckline, a technical agronomist from Eastern Iowa about disease.
Today on the podcast, we have Nicole Steckline, who is a technical agronomist for DeKalb and ASCRO over in Eastern Iowa, I believe is what you were telling me earlier, Nicole, before we started recording. But uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. So why don't you tell us just a little bit more about what you're seeing as a technical agronomist in Iowa, since so much has really been going on in your part of the world lately. Oh boy. Yeah. Sometimes I feel like Eastern Iowa is a cesspool of issues. (laughs) I mean, and, and in all serious, you know, my job, I don't get phone calls to go and look at good corn. You know, it's, it doesn't take a whole lot to walk out and say, yep, looks good. So I, you know, I do have to go out and look at the problem. So, you know, sometimes I get some blinders on and, oh, I think everything's so terrible, but but this year there, there is a lot of stuff that's struggling um, just because of the whirlwind of a year that we've had as far as well, whirlwind, you know, to be um, as, uh, as quiet as possible about that but uh for right now really the the most pressing issues that we're seeing right now in my opinion you know the the corn that's down from the derecho you know it's it's down and we know it's going to be hard so I'm putting a lot of my priority into helping guys that still have corn that's standing you know how do we make sure that they prioritize their fields so we can go out there and get them harvested while they are still standing. So in a lot of cases, going out and just doing push tests, um, I prioritize a lot of that on where I'm going to go first is fields that maybe didn't have as good a fertility, um, those fields that had the most drought stress. And then also thinking about those hybrids that I know don't have the best stock integrity or the ones that really tend to like a lot of nitrogen or like a lot of potash, because those are going to be the ones that are really going to start cannibalizing first, um, just because they they tend to like having more of it. So they they were kind of felt a little bit starving sooner when we started to dry up there in, in July and August. Nicole, you mentioned push tests there just a moment ago. Can you elaborate on what those are and why you use those, especially for our listeners that don't maybe come from corn and soybean states that would be familiar with those? Yeah, so I, I like to joke that the the only thing more detrimental to standing corn um, than a derecho is a curious agronomist um, because I, I end up uh, taking down a fair amount of corn. Just So when I go out and I do a push test, what you're going to want to do is go down the row and I'll actually do the corn on either side of me and push that stalk at the ear height and push it to until it's touching um, the row next to it at about a 45 degree angle. Um, and if you can go down and do a hundred plants, then you can figure out what percentage those plants are, you know, if whether they're getting kinked over from a stock rot or they have a, where they're lost stock integrity because of cannibalization, or maybe they're popping off because of physoderma node breakage. Um, so because of those three things is what's going to give us most of our issues. Um, and then we can kind of characterize a field based on what percentage of those plants we're kinking over. Um, and then that's going to help us put a harvest prioritization amongst our fields. So we know which ones are more likely to fall down and which ones are more likely to stay standing longer um, if we don't get to them right away. 
And when you look at Nicole, the, uh, I know you said you'd rather work with those farmers that still have some crops standing, still going to be able to harvest some of the corn here yet this year. But when you look at your part of the state in Southeast Iowa, do you see a lot of folks that are having now to disc under their crop? Do we still have a lot of folks that have standing corn in that part of the, the state? So where where I work, um, I cover kind of like East Central Iowa. So I've got Scott, Clinton, Cedar, Jones, Jackson, Delaware, Dubuque, and kind of up into like Northeast Iowa. So really, I've just got three counties right along at Highway 30 that really got hit hard. Um, I don't go quite south as Cedar Rapids. Those guys between like Cedar Rapids and Ames those are the guys that really got hit the hardest where they're being allowed to kind of zero out their crop and disc it under. Um, most of the, my area are going to probably end up having to go out and, uh, and, and pick that corn. So it, um, besides just going out and helping guys determine how to pick it so that it's, you know, if it's standing, it's still standing, but going out with those guys and trying to determine the best way, that we're going to manage the grain because it's such a mess in some of those areas like it hit by derecho. It's such a mess that I don't know that there's going to be one particular thing that's going to make it easier. Um, so really it becomes about how do we manage the grain so that it doesn't go out of condition. And then we have another problem that 2020 gave us. Nicole, I'm glad that you mentioned managing the grain because I saw on your Twitter that you had posted some pictures of some moldy ears of corn and were a part of a conversation about getting a plan together, a harvest plan that minimizes the impact of moldy grain, just to take that quote specifically from your conversation. But what can farmers do if they do have moldy grain and try and get out a harvest plan like that? Yep, I think that, the, and especially... You know, I wasn't too worried about it earlier. It's like, okay, it's there. We know we've got corn close to the ground, especially in the down corn areas. Um, but as soon as we start getting moisture, it's cold, it's wet right now. Um, this is the perfect environment for those molds to thrive. So I think first and foremost, getting out into your fields and identifying which fields have molds starting to grow into it, um, especially fields that would have had insect damage earlier on um, the insect damage, the bird damage creates a perfect way as you know for that fungus to get into that ear. Um, but focusing on fields where you can find um, those ear rots starting, and then really being able to identify which molds you have, because depending on which rot you have is really going to determine if you're going to have toxins, and then you know adds another level of complexity on how you're going to market that grain. Um, but, you know, if, you, if you're going to find a field that's got those ear rots, you're really going to want to get it picked as soon as possible so that you can, you know, get it picked and get it stopped before you get any more mold and grain damage. And then really, if it's possible, running it through a grain cleaner does a really good job, uh, you know, before you put it in the truck or before you put it in the bin, just to get rid of the chaff, chunks of cob, things like that. Because those are things that are going to very easily hold on to moisture once it's back in the bin. Um, and it's going to be a haven or a spot for that mold to continue to grow. So cleaning that grain can be a really important step. But then also, of course, drying it down 
and then keeping it dry in that bin and then monitoring it. You know, if you're going to be storing it, if you have bins left, um, monitoring it to make sure it doesn't go out of condition, keeping it cool, keeping it dry. Nicole, this has been great stuff. And as Ashton mentioned there, your Twitter is filled with all sorts of just cool stuff that you're seeing in the field and, you know, a lot of good information. For those of our listeners who are on social media, on Twitter, how can they follow along with you? So my handle is really easy. It's at Nicole Steckline. Um, so it's it's just my name. <laughs> you can figure out how to spell it. <laughs> Perfect. Well, we'll be sure to share your name in this uh, podcast's description so folks can follow along with you. But Nicole Steckline, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Welcome to the Hot Rod Farmer Minute. I am Ray Bohax from the Idle Chatter podcast heard on the Global Ag Network. An exhaust gas recirculation system has been used on most gasoline and diesel engines since 1973. Its function is to introduce inert exhaust gas as a filler into the cylinder to limit the amount of combustible mixture that enters. Even though the exhaust gas is hot, the reduction in combustible gases decreases the cylinder temperature. A common problem with an EGR system is the buildup of carbon under the valve's pintle. This can result in stalling or rough idle and overall poor performance. Remove the valve, clean off the carbon, and reinstall it with a new gasket and all will be fine. Agriculture runs on machinery, profits on reliability. Please visit FarmMachineRedigest.com for more helpful hints and technical articles where steel and soil meet. Well, again, a big thank you there to Nicole. You can follow her on Twitter at Nicole Steckline, and that's S-T-E-C-K-L-E-I-N. She's got a lot of great stuff she's always sharing on her Twitter account. And we are always sharing great stuff on our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram accounts at Ag News Daily and continuing to post episodes that you can listen to on our website at agnewsdaily.com. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.